In the early 1290s, the famed Italian explorer Marco Polo wrote a fantastic account of enormous serpentine-like creatures he encountered in a province called Karazan, or Karajan, perhaps somewhere near China. Quote, Here are seen huge serpents, ten paces in length, and ten spans in the girth of the body. At the forepart, near the head, they have two short legs, having three claws like those of a tiger, with eyes larger than a fourpenny loaf, and very glaring. The jaws are wide enough to swallow a man. The teeth are large and sharp, and their whole appearance is so formidable that neither man nor any kind of animal can approach them without terror. Others are met with a smaller size, being eight, six, or five paces long, and the following method is used for tracking them. In the daytime, by reason of the great heat, they lurk in caverns, from whence, at night, they issue to seek their food, and whatever beast they meet with and can lay hold of, whether tiger, wolf, or any other, they devour. After which they drag themselves towards some lake, spring of water, or river, in order to drink. By their motion in this way along the shore, and their vast weight, they make a deep impression, as if a heavy beam had been drawn along the sands." End quote. Was Marco Polo simply being sensational? Did he really see these things? To our modernist mindset, it instantly strikes us as wholly implausible. Dragons are purely mythical creatures. They never really existed. I recently watched a short YouTube video produced by a young man, a self-proclaimed atheist, who documented his visit to the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. In the museum is a display of historical narratives of differing accounts from around the world of people's encounters with dragons, including the aforementioned account of Marco Polo. The individual took the video of several of the placards and accompanying artwork and, in a mocking voice, narrated his own commentary for each of the displays. Whether or not Marco Polo's account is truthful, the issue it raises is one of how we, in the hypermodern era of science, skepticism, and social media, approach the idea of truth. It was clear from the outset that our YouTube friend derided the idea of dragons from the very beginning. And much of the history of the ancient past, if it seems foreign to our understanding, or dare we say supernatural in nature, or miraculous in any shape or form, by default must likely be untrue, even ridiculous. But by what standards, however, are we judging the past? How, for example, do we even begin to understand what Marco Polo saw? Why he wrote what he did? By what standards do we judge the truth of anything? What are the cultural authorities to which we appeal when we attempt to make truth claims, past, present, or future? How might we explain the legends and stories behind the dragon-like constellation of Draco, or Cetus, the sea monster, or Ophiuchus, the serpent handler, or the venomous arachnid of Scorpius, extending its terrible claws toward the celestial maiden of Virgo. Did the ancients just look at the sky and make up these fantastical entities? Are they just myths? By and large, the default answer seems to be a resounding yes. Anything supernatural is nearly always dismissed. Historians of a secular bend will often likewise make similar claims regarding Jesus of Nazareth. Attempting to establish that his divine nature as the Son of God was nothing more than a gradually developing mythos, comprised of an amalgam of reconfigured paganism, which eventually led to his legendary reputation as the Christ. 
Agnostic and New Testament historian Bart Ehrman, for example, claims that there were many mythical and pagan ideas about human beings becoming divine prior to the advent of Christianity. As a historian, he compares the life and legends of the ancient mystic philosopher Apollonius, who Ehrman claims was revered as, quote, the son of God, end quote. He makes the association between the legends that grew up around Apollonius to the Gospel of Luke and ultimately to the life of Jesus. Ehrman claims that in the ancient world, quote, Apollonius and Jesus were seen as competitors for divine honors, one a pagan worshiper of many gods, the other a Jewish worshiper of the one God, one a promoter of pagan philosophy, the other the founder of the Christian religion. Both of them were declared to be God on earth, even though they were both also obviously human. In a sense, they were thought of as divine men, end quote. Ehrman, however, footnotes this statement, which is found in the back of the book, and admits that the accounts of Apollonius were written, quote, after the Gospels were in circulation, end quote. Thus, Ehrman says, quote, it is entirely possible, as many critics have pointed out, that Philostratus, the writer of Apollonius's stories, was influenced by their portrayal of Jesus, and that as a result, he himself created the similarities between his account of Apollonius and the Gospel stories. That may indeed be true, but my point is that these pagan readers would have no difficulty accepting the idea that Apollonius was another divine man like others who were widely known, end quote. Those others, which Ehrman mentions later, are Zeus, Jupiter, Alexander the Great, Romulus, Julius Caesar, and Caesar Augustus. But New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado does not think the connection between paganistic ideas about divine humans and Jesus is so readily obvious. Hurtado notes that, quote, it is hard to demonstrate the relevance of pagan references to divine sonship. There are references to the human race as offspring of Zeus or other high gods, but this hardly relates to the way Paul attaches special significance to Jesus as God's unique son. Great figures such as Alexander the Great might be portrayed as a son of a deity, but this was essentially an honorific gesture in recognition of some qualities such as wisdom or military prowess and with the intention of presenting the figure as an exceptionally impressive human being. In fact, the phrase, son of God, was not common in Greco-Roman paganism. The deities of the so-called mystery cults, to which early history of religion scholars attached such importance for early Christianity, were not referred to as son of God. The title does seem to have been promoted in the Roman emperor cult, but any influence of emperor devotion upon early Christianity was probably much later than Paul, and likely was considered blasphemous and rejected rather than considered something to be appropriated. The judgment of that master of the Roman period, A.D. Nock, still holds concerning the Pauline attribution of divine sonship to Jesus. The attempts which have been made to explain it from the larger Hellenistic world fail. End quote. But if a historian, or anyone for that matter, expresses doubts about the records of the ancient past, that doubt assumes some kind of authoritative standard of truth. Often the standard is latent, perhaps hidden even from the claimant himself. But to genuinely doubt something, no matter if it is a passage from Marco Polo, the Apostle Paul, or from a renowned astrophysicist of the 21st century, one must first assume an axiomatic starting point by which claims are assessed. Theologian Leslie Newbegin notes, quote, When we undertake to doubt any statement, we do so on the basis of beliefs which, in the act of doubting, we do not doubt. I can only doubt the truth of a statement on the ground of other things, usually a great many other things, which I believe to be true. 
it is impossible at the same time to doubt both the statement and the beliefs on the basis of which the statement is doubted. Doubt may take two forms. It may be in the form, I doubt your statement because I believe that something else is true. I doubt it because it does not square with the rest of my beliefs. In that case, the situation is clear. But there is also an agnostic doubt, which may again take two forms. It may be, your statement is not proved, or your statement is of such a kind that it can never be proved, therefore I doubt it. But in both forms, this assumes that the doubter believes that there are criteria of proof which would be applicable in this case, or he believes that there are no such criteria. In either case, he is able to doubt only because of the things which he believes without doubting. End quote. Simply doubting for doubt's sake is impossible, but by an a priori rejection of God and the supernatural, the doubting skeptic becomes his own authority, with no external means by which to assess truth claims except his own mind. The cosmos and everything it contains are interpreted in whatever way the skeptic sees fit. But as C.S. Lewis noted, if I swallow the scientific cosmology whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry in the long run, on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more meaning than the sound of wind in the trees. End quote. Doubt that God created the universe and the entirety of the cosmic order begins to unravel on earth as it is in the heavens. On this episode, Wayne and Dan and our very special guest, Mama Bear apologist and blogger Rebecca Valerius, discuss the baleful impact of postmodern thinking upon our concept of truth and offer some conversational insights into how we as Christians can aid in recapturing meaning, purpose, and truth in a culture awash in a relativistic chaos. As the Nobel Prize-winning mathematician and physicist Paul Dirac believed, expressing the relationship of things should be done with, quote, beautiful form, end quote. The theories of physics, quote, were just as beautiful for Dirac as Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, a Rembrandt self-portrait, or a Milton sonnet. The beauty of a fundamental theory in physics has several characteristics in common with a great work of art. Fundamental simplicity, inevitability, power, and grandeur, end quote. If a secular physicist can see the unifying power of beauty in things, how much more so should Christians consider afresh Paul's exhortation to contemplate, quote, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, end quote. For by so doing, we remind ourselves and the world in which we live, how all things have been created through Christ for his glory. Hello, Wayne. Good morning. We are in South Lake, Texas at Buongiorno Coffee for another episode of Good Heavens. How are you today? Hi, Dan. It's good to be here. Yeah, let's give it a whirl. We actually have a special guest today, somebody that you and I know. We do. Um, Rebecca Valerius is with us from Mama Bear Apologetics. Yeah, Mama Bear Apologetics. They're wonderfully gifted and intelligent women speaking about Jesus, the universe, postmodernism, feminism, naturalism. They're doing a book on isms, and we're going to talk about their book today and how that all relates to the cosmos, right? We're going to do that in about an hour. 
Yes. You uh, think? Believe, believe it or not, or not, it ties together. It does. It all ties together. Uh, so we're just going to have a conversational uh, platform with Rebecca today about her book that she's writing with uh, Hillary Morgan Ferrer. I, I've seen your husband speak. I'm talking to Hillary through the microphone as if she's listening. Hello, Hillary. I hope you're doing well. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about their book that's coming. They're writing a book together. It's a collection of essays about all the, the isms, the naturalism and feminism and modernism and postmodernism and all the other isms. Rebecca's going to fill us in on that. And uh, we're going to kind of dovetail that with uh, our book, Wayne. We are in a book together. We're working on a book, so we're kind of on uh, camping out on book projects today. We are. We are coming out uh, on the same publisher, Harvest House. Uh, ours will be out in next summer. And uh, Rebecca can tell us when theirs will be out. But I think they're coming out at about the same time. And uh, Terry Glaspie at Harvest House is our, uh, is our boss. He's the, he's the chief of these projects together. So we're kind of united together. Uh, Rebecca's husband, Lee, calls us the cosmological bears. And, <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. And, uh, so, and Rebecca and, and Hillary are the, the mama bears. But speaking of bears, both cosmological and mama, um, I, think, I think we've talked about this over dinner before, but uh, there's a lot of bears in cosmology. So the, there's, the, <laughs> there's the bear of Ursa Major. Ursa Major. Of which the Big Dipper is a part. Yes. It is a circumpolar... Uh, constellation, and if you go up north, far north, following the North Star all the way to the North Pole, you will be in the Arctic, and Ark and Arctic means bear. Uh-huh. It's bear-like. Okay. And so, if you go to the South Pole, in Antarctica, there are no bears. It's penguins. But if you go up into the Arctic, you will find polar bears. But you will never find polar bears and penguins together at the same place unless you go to a zoo. Yes. So, so there's there's bears in the north. There's the constellation of Ursa Major, and then there's the star Arcturus. And we talked about Arcturus in our last podcast, right? About uh, uh, the the star in the in the Bear Watcher, the constellation Useful navigation. Yeah, right. the star of joy for the Hawaiian Polynesian uh, canoeists. Uh, so anyway, I see Rebecca is chomping at the bit to talk about her book, and we're going to let her uh, have the mic and tell us all about what she's doing with mama bears. Rebecca. By the way, you mentioned Arcturus. Have you ever read H.P. Lovecraft? He was a, he's a writer that was a very dark person, but he was one of these writers that was really honest about what life without God is. And he has um, a quote, I should send it to you, where he says that um, Arcturus wouldn't care if it would shine on if we did not exist. And that's one of the things that we are talking about in our mama bear book is trying to help the moms understand the world we live in and the ideas that have created this world, which is kind of what you guys have done. So, But I can give you some background about Mama Bear. Um, I guess it was about three years ago now I met Hillary at an apologetics event, and someone had already told me that I need to meet her because there's like we were the only women that were usually at these events. And, um, and we both have science backgrounds. I have biochemistry, she has biology, and we started talking about proteins and just instant connection. Um, she had always, she and her husband both, John Ferrer, um, have a huge heart for kids that leave the faith in college. They call it the youth exodus. And one of the things that they were finding was that um, the parents weren't really prepared as well. The children uh-huh. weren't prepared for college, but the parents weren't prepared for what's happening. Therefore, the parents can't prepare their kids. Yeah, Rebecca, I saw this when I used to be a teacher, and I I was teaching in Christian school. The kids will sometimes ask questions the parents can't answer. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the kids have 
are better in dealing with it than the parents. Uh, yes. Sorry to say, but yeah. But it's it's out there. There's there's good answers out there if you look for them. Yes, and I think one of the things that we were finding, um, so we combined these two sort of pieces of information that we had, that there were no women at these apologetics conferences and that the parents were not getting the apologetics to their children. Mm -hmm. Um, And we thought, well, what can we do about this? Usually it's moms, especially in the Christian community, that are spending the most time with their kids, and a lot of them are educating them these days because there's a lot of wonderful support for homeschooling. But um, most of these moms were very intimidated by apologetics. They think, oh, that's just two guys arguing at each other, <laughs> and which, unfortunately, a lot of the times it is. Yeah, it needs to become better than that. And it, it, yeah. it does need to be earlier in being introduced to kids. Yeah. Because so that it's not college when they run into these questions the first time. Yeah. One of the things you probably know because your children are in a classical school is the trivium. Yes. The classical education model. Once you get past the grammar uh, stage and you get up into the upper echelons of the higher order of classical education, one of the things that is taught, at least in the classical model way back when, was astronomy. Yeah, and so one of the things today that we have is just all this um, isolation. And so, mm-hmm. you know, people are taught science, but they're not taught it with scripture. And right. with the arguments that are out there today, that are arguments being used against the faith and Christianity has had apologetics from the very beginning you can look at you can see it in the New Testament with Paul on Mars Hill using pagan poetry to reach these people he was making an argument and he was taking what are the predominant ideas of your time and saying you know what is the Christian answer to this how does this fit into the Christian view Right, and Rebecca, kids need to learn how ideas tie together. I remember when I was a teacher, and I, I had a middle school classes, so like sixth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade classes. Yeah. And my, I think it was my ninth graders that were talking to, to me one day, and they said, Mr. Spencer, we get English, math, uh, science, and Bible all in your class. <laughs> I love it. And this was a complaint. This, Very medieval. This is a, he didn't like this, okay? And I, I said, wow, that's the nicest compliment I've ever gotten. I love it. <laughs> I never forgot it. I love it. Yeah, one of the things I think I've taught middle school and high school and even elementary school, and one of the things that I think I see kids a lot confused by is they go to different buildings for different subjects, one classroom, one subject. My last middle school job, I taught English and Bible, but across my the top of my, my chalkboard, I had uh, cutouts of the planets. Mr. A, this isn't science class. <laughs> and I was teaching Lewis to 7th and 8th graders, and uh, so I was doing planets and science and um, on top of the, the literature and the English. And so the, the, by the end of the year, that's like, okay, the planets made sense. You know, and, and God is a, our God is a logos, the logos. The, a speak, he spoke things into existence. He used words to create things. He is the word made flesh. But the kids, the, in, in my teaching experience, even in Christian schools, the, the subjects are separated, uh, like hermenetically sealed off from one another. You go to the science class, Mr. Jones in science, Miss Smith in math, Mr. Ray in English, and, you know, and then you have PE, and there's no integration. And I think that's part of the, part of the problem that, of the isms that Rebecca will be talking about, is there's no continuity, there's no semblance of order, there's no 
there's no unity. As you know, Colossians says that all things were created through him and by him and for him. And that's kind of what I think I hope our books start to accomplish, that, right. that, that conversation of, of unifying things. So truth is not neatly separated into separate boxes. Mm-hmm. It's really all, all one. Truth is a person. Yeah, we, we narrow it down so that we can understand, but we shouldn't. Because we're looking the, at a giant. We are looking at a <laughs> giant. See and, and truth overlaps, truth mixes together, and we need to understand that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, anyway, so ha- Hillary um, had this idea to start an apologetics ministry for moms mm-hmm. to really first show moms how important it is and second, demystify it mm-hmm. and, and take all the big words and, and, and all of that and make it, put it in mom, simple language, and in particular, busy mom language because moms are busy today. Mm-hmm. We've had this breakdown in community, so moms are really running their families on their own in a lot of ways. I mean, their yeah. husbands are helping, but their husbands are having to go off and work crazy hours. Mm-hmm. And it's just the world we live in, so how do we do that? So we started off with a podcast because we were going to break these things down. One of the things is that when I was, when my girls were really little, I, I went through a time, a really deep spiritual doubt, and I listened to podcasts during that time. I listened to Dr. Craig's podcast. I found, I listened to, one of my favorite thinkers is Dennis Prager, and I would listen to him when he's not talking politics, and, um, but when he would talk religion. And so I would get as many podcasts as I could to, to feed my brain and keep it going and help me with my questions. And so we thought, let's make these podcasts that are, you know, good length, uh, re- relatively short, where the moms can listen to them, like when they're working out or when they're running to and fro, taking their kids from here to there. And um, what's happened with Mama Bear is we've always wanted to bring on more women that are involved in this and, and that want to bring what God has gifted them with to the um, ministry. And so we've brought on other women to be a part of our Mama Bear apologetics. Hillary... Um, was uh hillary has the the book came about because she has another book that she wants to write that has been on her heart for years and um she approached harvest house with this um book idea but when they heard about mama bear apologetics they're like that needs to be a book that needs to be a book too so um that's how that book the book came about and um the idea of it is taking all the ideas and we call them the isms because that's just kind of a simple way of looking at it, but all the isms that are affecting our modern world today and breaking it down into mom language and helping them be able to know what those are and then see them working in our, our culture, help them not only teach their kids to see these things, but also to know how to reach people in these things. Because one of the things that we're learning is... Um, ideas really do have consequences. We say isms, but what are those really? Those are ways of thinking because people are made in God's image and they want to make meaning and truth out of this world. And these are ways that people are trying to do it given what's been handed to us, as you guys will say in your book since the enlightenment. And, um, it does have consequences and we can see that in our world. And so if we can help moms understand it first, they won't be afraid of it. And that's so important because Perfect love casts out fear, right? So right. if you have fear, you can't love. You can't mm-hmm. love your neighbor. You can't, and that's love God, love your neighbor. That's the greatest commandment. So, so it's teaching, we're demystifying these ideas and then helping them learn to see how those ideas have influenced our culture. And then they can 
hopefully teach their children to think critically about them, but lovingly as well. And so them and their children will be equipped to help people that are caught in these lies. Okay, so Rebecca, give me a list of the isms. <laughs> I can give you a list of some of them because, you know, golly, there's a lot. Um, we have naturalism, which mm-hmm. is very important. That's a very very big one. We have, um, and Hillary and I are working on that together, um, which is really fun because both of us being in the sciences, that's, sure. those are things we had to work through. Me and I really had to work through that. She's had, she was gifted with incredible family and pastors at a young age and got apologetics when she was in junior high. So she's kind of the person mm. that we're trying to help cr- parents create. I didn't get that. So, right. so okay. I had to kind of battle naturalism on my own. Um, but so we're working on that together. Um, I'm doing a chapter on feminism, uh-huh. which is very interesting because growing up with two brothers, I I could never really be a feminist because I know guys have it hard. I've seen mm. them struggle. And so this whole idea of a patriarchy was so weird to me. But this has been great because I've been able to understand the thinking behind it so that I can love my you know, the, my the, the women that I know that are feminists and not just be dismissive of them. Um, understand their thinking behind it, even though it's wrong. And then another chapter that I'm doing is postmodernism, which is pretty crazy making, <laughs> trying to make sense of it. Um, but again, it's one of those things that you're tempted to just dismiss offhand as, oh, it's just sinful man. But when you get down into it, you see people are still striving for truth because we're, we're made in God's image. We don't want to believe lies. So given what they've inherited, they're still trying to find the truth of things. And sure, there's sinfulness involved in it, but Even it's more complex. Even if they dismiss some of, the, some of the sources of truth, they're still looking in other ways. They can't uh, avoid it. Yeah. It's inescapable. Yeah. So what's interesting, I have this quote. We were talking about, you know, what is postmodernism, right? And how does it relate to, why is it on a podcast about the heavens wane <laughs> well because fundamentally it, it postmodernism if you look up uh the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy has a pretty you can get this free online has a pretty good rundown of what it is uh for for the simple-minded like me uh there's a lot of philosophical detail and uh it's it's very easy to oversimplify what it means but it's not a term that that philosophers who started postmodernism would actually use. They would use other terms more complicated, more difficult, more dense than I can even begin to imagine. But the, the fundamental motivation of postmodernism is the deconstructing of text, if you will, it, it, of meaning. Uh, the, the, the destruction of meaning with a capital M. Nothing means anything. There's no uh, what they might call meta-narratives. There's no one story behind the heavens and the earth. There's, there's just... You and I grappling with things that have been written, but there are there are no real authors. There is no authorial intent, and the text can pretty much fall apart and mean whatever you want it to mean. Yeah, there is no objective truth. Right, and so that that doesn't just permeate the books we read. That permeates the physical world that we look at through the sciences. Yeah, and Dan, I think there's in postmodernism was very much a reaction to. Uh, science, the way science developed, yeah, right? Because science was very authoritarian, authoritarian, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of rejection of authority that goes with. Port that's that's a good point, Wayne. Yeah, there there is there is I think there is some beneficial aspect to, to the questioning of certain kinds of authority, but I think it goes too far. Yes. In terms of there is always an authority 
somewhere right. behind the intentions of how we read things. This question of authority is something that Hillary and I are finding a lot as we are researching and writing it. And it is so fun to write a book and to see how all, the, all of it is related and you see a thread. And so, yes, science came along because science was going to rescue the authority problem that humanity was having after the Reformation. Mm. And there were religious wars and a lot of fighting. And I think that, that we, ha we can't downplay how that affected people um, mentally, emotionally. They were, there was a religion fatigue, and they wanted to sure. find some supposedly neutral source of objective truth that mm. was neutral, though. So they wanted to separate off all these things that seemed to cause problems, the values, the ethics, the religion, and have this, this stuff is going to tell us the way things really are. And what they found was that that became oppressive. You can use reason and science in an oppressive way. So that's why you see the authority problem. You hear postmodernists talk a lot about oppression. Um, and that's why oppression is such a big deal in our culture today. But you're right, Dan. We can't escape it. We can't escape something becoming the authority and, by definition, being, therefore, oppression. But I think um, when science started out of a Christian worldview, yeah. and it took a different direction, it was turned in another way. Yeah. And it was as science turned away from a Christian view that it became more oppressive. Absolutely. I think. Because, it became value-free. Because when you, when you look at things from a Christian view, you, you hold on to... God creating human beings in, in his image, yeah. and you have a, a different concept of the worth of a human being Absolutely. Than, than in any other belief. No yeah. other belief system has the same concept of the worth of a human being. And you can't get that from science. You can't right. get that from looking at DNA or anything. Yeah. So that's how Christianity kept things in balance. So when, when science departed from, went toward a naturalism, yeah. And away from a Christian view, it it twisted it and it made it unhealthy and not as meaningful to people. Yeah. Something from the 18th century, uh, just a few years before the French Revolution. Denis Diderot, he was a French philosopher who completed his Encyclopédie in 1772. It was a multi-volume work. It was huge. It was expensive to to print and to purchase. But it was, uh, I want to quote from historia, church historian Bruce Shelley. He said, uh, the philosophes, of which Diderot was a part, heralded the supremacy of the new science, championed tolerance, denounced superstition, and expounded the merits of deism. Diderot's article on Christianity professed high regard for the religion of Jesus, but its, effects was, was to, but its effect was to stir the reader to a profound contempt for Christianity's social failures. They aimed their missiles not at a single point of dogma, but at the foundation of all Christian truths. Their well-publicized purpose was to demolish the citadel of Christian belief. And um, hmm. in, in one sense, I, I think when you, when you go after, in the postmodern sense, I was looking, I was doing some writing research on uh, Jacques uh, Derrida, if I'm killing his name, a French philosopher who is oftentimes cited in these discussions about postmodernity. And uh, Derrida never used the term postmodernity. He died in 2004, but he wrote three books and basically uh, introduced to 20th century culture the idea of deconstructing texts. So for uh, Derrida, a text isn't a book. 
authors don't really have an intention. Words don't have meaning. Uh, the, the exercise of reading texts is one is reduced to a functionality. So in other words, you look at social media today or Twitter or Facebook and the way people uh, excoriate one another that they don't even know with words. There's a functionality to words that devalues their meaning. And so the, the end result, probably unintentionally by Derrida, maybe intentionally, I don't know, that Derrida would look at a text and say there's no authorial intent, there's no meaning in these words except how they function. So, so reading books is just like one infinite uh, series of the signifier and his texts, just grappling with text. There's no meaning. It's just an ongoing grappling with texts. And, but, but the end result of that is that ultimately it deconstructs the, the idea of meaning with a capital M overall. Well, it's, it just kind of goes against what language is. Yes, it is. We lang- have language so that we can communicate, Dan. Right, exactly. I mean, but, and the, the, irony, the ironic thing about Derrida, I don't, even, I don't know if people notice this or not, but the ironic thing about Derrida is that he's using words mm-hmm. to devalue words. He's devaluing right, his own right. Words. I was reading an, astro- an astrophysicist talking about black holes, <laughs> uh, a very intelligent, uh, short little discourse about it, and she was using words to explain the superiority of mathematics mm. over written language in describing the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in trying to make mathematics superior to words, she has to use words to do it. Yeah, there's, that's interesting. There's no equation yeah. that's going to tell you that math is superior to language. Yeah, math, I, math is a kind of a language. But, right. but, but yeah, Derrida obviously has, intends his, his books to be books, to be meaningful, mm-hmm. to convey a truth. And so we get back to this authority. Why should Derrida be any kind, why should, why should that be an individual whom we can trust to be any kind of epistemic or cultural authority for how we understand the world? Reminds me of something that, um, of course, brings my mind to Chesterton because my mind goes there a lot. And Hillary's having to put the brakes on how many times I quote him, <laughs> which I'm thankful for that because he's not for everyone. But you talk about Derrida writing in such a way as to empty his what he is saying himself from any meaning. And Chesterton said, there is a stop, there is a thought that stops thought, and that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. For Derrida, there are words and things you write that stop words and things you write. And that is the only one that needs to be stopped. He said, that is the ultimate evil against which all religious authority was aimed. And it only appears at the end of decadent ages like our own, And already, Mr. H.G. Wells, who was a friend of his, he used to go out and have beer with him and argue, but they were friends, um, has raised its ruinous ruinous banner. He has written a delicate piece of skepticism called Doubts of the Instrument. In this, he questions the brain itself and endeavors to remove all reality from his own assertions, past, present, and to come. And then he goes on to say that this is... One of the things that people want to say is that reason and religion are in conflict, but Chesterton is making the argument that religion was protecting reason. Religion was protecting man's freedom to reason, to think, and to have his thoughts correspond to reality. Mm. And and it really strikes me that the postmodernists, really what the postmodernists are doing are working out naturalism. I mean, they're going against it, but they're working out it because you can see in this... 
something um, Alvin Plantinga has the evolutionary argument against naturalism and he says how naturalism kills itself because how can we trust if our brains are the product of some mindless um, non-rational forces how can we trust the things that brain comes up with including naturalism right so it's like we can't escape the loop and um and in Derrida, they're they're doing that. They're they're trying to work it out, and really, it's a kind of a crazy-making thing. It's interesting because new atheism, since the last decade or so, seems to take advantage of a kind of a cultural ignorance. In other words, these arguments for atheism seem to have their success with people who are unfamiliar with what I would call atheism 1.0, the kind that came from uh, Bertrand Russell, yes. Albert Camus. These these are the what I would might call the Old Testament version of atheism. It's the unpleasant texts of old atheism. Those are the ones who came to grips with the reality of what atheism's conclusions lead one to. But you don't see any in-depth treatment from new atheistic tomes, whether it's on the internet or in books, about past atheisms in any great detail. Perhaps maybe Christopher Hitchens would occasionally make a nod to to the atheism of the past in his criticisms, but by and large, you don't have a systematic treatment of atheism 1.0. But it's summed up in what Bertrand Russell wrote in, um, I think it was uh, A Free Man's Worship, his essay. And it says that, uh, he says, Russell says that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. In other words, uh, we came into being without any purpose or meaning. That man's origin, his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of, an, of accidental collocations of atoms, as Rebecca was saying, the, the meaninglessness of reason if it's just brain right. chemistry. Uh, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. And that was Bertrand Russell in the early 20th century. But Wayne, um, tying this together with astronomy, one of the most well-known astronomers of the last four centuries who paved the way for our modern understanding of the cosmos was Johannes Kepler. Right. And Kepler, what's a lot of people maybe, you know, he formulated his three laws of planetary motion in 1605 and 1619, I think was the final publication or 1615 when he finally published all three laws together. But in the interim, you know, Galileo's staring at Jupiter and, and Miguel Cervantes is writing Don Quixote. But Kepler <laughs> is struggling with counter-reformational politics and persecution. He himself was a Lutheran yes. in the midst of a lot of Catholic dioceses uh, during an intense time of uh, persecution. And he had to move a lot. He had struggles. But he had an anchor that enabled him to... Ultimately, you can argue that the planetary laws themselves were as the result of Kepler's faith anchored in the, the authority and the truth of Scripture. Yes, I, and uh, that's a good intro to Kepler. And that's 
uh, Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler are the subject of my chapter in our book project. Today. Yes. And, uh, the we, Odd Couple of Astronomy. We call them the Gloriously Odd Couple yeah. in Astronomy. And we did a podcast so, on that. You should go back into our archives. Yeah, and, that was and, a fun podcast. Yeah. But, so um, Kepler lived at a time of uh, extraordinary conflicts, and we were talking about authority and uh Kepler wrestled with authorities of, from different sides. So he, he was in the middle of the um, the controversy about the Ptolemaic idea of the of Earth being in the center and the planets and the universe being. Then there was Copernicus who said that the sun was in the center and everything moved around it. So Kepler argued for the Copernican idea, but. So that was one controversy. And then in theology, he was he was a, a Lutheran, very strong Lutheran. He had, had a very strong faith, and uh, but he disagreed with the Lutherans when it came to communion. Mm-hmm. And he went along with the Calvinists more on communion. So he didn't just buy buy the authoritative idea that was kind of accepted. He he didn't always go along with the Lutherans and he didn't always go along with the Catholics, but but he he accepted the Gregorian calendar, okay? Mm-hmm. Back in his day, not everyone used the same calendar, Dan. Right. And uh, some cities used uh, one calendar and other cities used another calendar which caused a lot of problems. And and so the Gregorian calendar came from one of the popes, Pope Gregory the seventh or sixth, I can't remember. Or, or so, anyway, so he um, Kepler went along with the Gregorian calendar, and he told Christians and Protestants that they should accept it because it was a good calendar. <laughs> but Protestants would would tell Kepler, well, you shouldn't do that. You're going along with Catholicism by accepting their calendar. Mm-hmm. And so he took things that were good wherever they came from. And yeah. so he, he was very good at kind of navigating a path in between the conflicts of the time. Yeah, you know. yeah and it was, it was like a minefield. In Europe at the time, uh, the leader of a city would have to decide what the religion was going to be for that city. He said, to to whom the land, to his the religion. That was the idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, there were some cities that were Protestant that all of a sudden there was a new ruler of the city who was a Catholic. And what they they would often do is charge some kind of fines or something to the Protestants. They might confiscate property and throw them out of the city. Yeah. This happened to Kepler and his family at least twice. Yeah. And uh, the man had a terrible. I mean, the, the trials of Kepler sound like Job. Yes. They. they I mean, the, the man went through an extraordinary amount. Not not just when he was studying the orbits of Mars, but he was trying to tangle with a very bombastic Dane, Tycho Brahe, and he was struggling with family things. His mother was accused of being a witch. He had a sickly upbringing. This yeah, and when he was in Prague, he was working for a, a king who was probably insane. He was nuts. <laughs> it was the, the, cat, the, the palace was full of all kinds of bizarre, weird people. Yeah. And uh, it's really an interesting story. There's so many interesting aspects of Kepler's life, but I think he was an extraordinary example in the way he he took care of his family. He he kept his position. He he, he was considered a mathematician mm-hmm. because he worked usually for uh, royalty in some way or other, and uh, writing calendar books and 
was part of his job. That included some astrological yeah, prognostications. He, he, he wrote horoscopes for kings. <laughs> he, he wrote horoscopes, though he didn't like for it. Money, for and money. He, to much. his own friends and astronomers, he, he yeah. wrote a lot about the problems with astrology. And he yeah. said, this is all nuts kind of thing. You know, He, he had a lot of interesting comments mm-hmm. against them about the problems with astrology. But Kepler had, but, Kepler had an anchor to get him through all of that stuff. Yeah, right? so out of all of this mess... He went back to scripture, and he uh, he didn't just accept whatever a particular group's interpretation was. He examined scripture for himself. He was very influenced by Martin Luther. Um, he had a Luther Bible, and um, he knew Greek and Hebrew. Most yeah. uh, scholars of the time did. I mean, Tycho Brahe knew Greek yeah. and Hebrew. Yeah. How, how many how many astrophysicists or astronomers today know Greek and Hebrew? Right. <laughs> and uh, Kepler switched to, from Greek to Hebrew to English like that without any without missing a beat. And yeah. He, and he was well known for how well he could write in Latin. Yeah. Uh, so he. He, he was taught, a polymath. He was he a polymath. Taught, he taught Latin for some time. Guys, he, he is yeah. the he's the embodiment of of what I think uh, both of our books are trying to aim at a holistic a holistic person with a wide variety of knowledge. He also wrote poetry. You'll find some interesting poetry. I did not know that at the beginning and ends of some of his writings. There's some really interesting poems that he did. I'm going to have to check that out. So, but it, but what what I think we're kind of nibbling at here is the idea that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's a unity that hangs together right. in creation that is anchored in Christ. Right. In Colossians, all things were created by him and for him and through him, and he upholds all things uh, by the word of his power. And this is what, as Rebecca said earlier, this is what Paul recognized on Mars Hill. You can take pagan poetry. You can take secular science. You can take postmodern truth. You can you can take the best writings from from any century that we have, and you can recognize that there are truths in and among all of that that point to Christ. If if you're looking for it, as as Romans says, that 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 God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through the things that He has created. Absolutely. So, so Kepler recognized this, and it's one thing. One one of my one of my favorite things about Kepler is him trying to get information from Tycho. Tycho did not want to share. He, right. He did not want to share. But Tycho had observational data, and Kepler had the genius of trying to synthesize and coordinate that data. And one of the most frustrating things about Kepler, I think we've talked about this at length, was his, with his tangle with the planet Mars, trying mm-hmm. to untangle the orbits. He sat on the borderland, if you will, between uh, the Ptolemy-Aristotelian cosmology of perfect circles and Kepler was going mad, trying to make, trying to see how Mars could be a perfect circle, but it didn't. It didn't move like that. Right. So he's 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 tangling with the god of war, if you will, <laughs> another kind of Mars hill. Yeah. Trying to extract it, the truth about how it moves. Right. right? And so through that warfare, uh, Kepler was continually anchored to the scriptures, and uh, you know, but it was a it was a long and complicated process. It wasn't like God just came to him one night and told him how Mars worked. I mean, Kepler's theories were uh, he created a, a beautiful you know work of art, but it was totally untrue. The geometrical spheres within right, the spheres yes. within spheres. <laughs> so he tried to look at God's design of the universe in a certain way, and he didn't really have good enough observational data to t- check it and test right. it. So it, when you can't test it, you can come up with all kinds of ideas, right? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So 
the real design in in the created order was different than what Kepler expected and what he was yeah. looking for. Yeah. It wasn't perfect circles. It wasn't the five platonic solids nested no. inside of each other. No, no, no. It was mathematical. Yeah. It was a different kind of order that he didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Right. And it took him years of longhand calculations to finally come to the point where he could say, I was wrong. Right, right. So, so he... He, he went through a critical thinking that was a struggle over years before he came to his equations of motion. And I think... And, uh, and Dan, there's a, there's a critical thinking in this. Yeah. You can apply critical thinking, whether it's in science or whether it's in dealing with uh, theology and interpreting scripture. Yeah. And Kepler did both. And that's why he had... He didn't just blindly accept things. He reasoned it through and worked it through himself. Right, right. There's a, there's a, the text of the physical world that we read, and there's the text of Scripture and the, 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 the sources of the, the giants on the shoulders in which we stand, you know, looking at the data. You couldn't have had Kepler's laws without Tycho's observations. Right. And, and so it's a, it's a cohesive team effort. Um, but when we are talking about the physical world or whether we are talking about science— uh, today, the the cultural authority is largely science, um, and I think the the Mama Bear's book is a is a great will be a great addition to the conversation in terms of how to identify the cultural authorities in terms of how we think. Right, Rebecca? Yes, absolutely. The cultural authorities. So we we are in a, we are a culture that is obsessed with authority. And yet we have these ideas that are influencing us. They are authorities in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love and we want to reach with the gospel. And they're like, um, they're, st- they're the stumbling blocks. They're the gods of this age. Um, and it's really what we battle against are these ideas. And, and the thing that we want to help the mama bears do is see the truth in the ideas, see Jesus in them, like you said. You can find Jesus if Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mm. We believe that what these people are being drawn to, to believe these lies, is some part of Jesus in there, some truth. And so if we can understand what's happening and the mechanics of that, not only can we teach our children to teach them to hold on to Jesus and the truth and despite the lies of, and really our battle is not against flesh and blood, but mm-hmm. against the evil one. And we can fend off the lies of Satan, and, um, and I, I really like what you said, Dan, about the, um, the old atheists like R- Russell um, Sartre, and you know, it's really interesting to me, even Dawkins um, will talk about the meaninglessness of things, and he will be very honest about how things are, there's, there's no meaning, yet in all of that, Russell and Dawkins are playing God in a way because they're saying somehow they're not part of the system, that they're, they're transcending above the system and telling us how it all is and then coming back down. And but they are part of it. But yeah. their words alone have yeah. meaning. Mm-hmm. Derrida's words alone, you can't deconstruct like that. So it's that you will be like gods. And it's that same lie that we all are, you know. So we could all do this. But we need to have something outside of ourselves to come back to as our anchor. Yeah. And that's Scripture. Absolutely. And the, the Scripture is one of the first things, and that's one of the things that we're doing with the book, too. We are taking it back and tell us, telling us, okay, how, do we, how are we discerning about these ideas, and how do they hold up to the truths of Scripture and what, what, what we know of Christ 
through that. It's interesting because in, in, a, in a postmodern Derrida deconstruction world in which we live and texts have no meaning or they can mean whatever you want them to mean or there simply is no meaning, you can look at a book, you can look at the Bible, you can look at the heavens, you can look at geology, you can look at biological life, you can look at the, all of these things. And without an authority of some kind, what we end up having to do by default is resort to our own self-confidence, our own way of understanding, and the self becomes the self-appointed authority and filter of all things that are true. G.K. Mm-hmm. Chesterton wrote this. This came out of Orthodoxy, and Orthodoxy was written in 1908, so this is over 100, 100 years old, but it's, it's true. He says, Shall I tell you where the men are who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar? I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen, capital S. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. If you consulted your business experience instead of your ugly individualistic philosophy, you would know that believing in himself is one of the commonest signs of a rotter. It would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin, Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Um, and I think that that's, but that's where we are. You, with bereft of any external authority, um, we are all making, all forced to kind of make individualistic assessments of, of truth. And we become, the individual self becomes the final arbiter of truth. But of course, that leads to a ridiculously rampant relativism. Right. And uh, it leads to questions like, well, why should we study Anybody, why should we read about the past? Why should we bother to know anything about Kepler? When you have something to say about that, right? Right, so uh, my chapter in the book is about Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler. They're not perfect men, uh, but they're, especially Kepler, has some really good things about him, his life and his, his, his example. I want to read a section, Dan, from a, a book about Kepler. It's called Kepler's Witch. <laughs> Kepler's witch is a reference to his mother. His, who, yeah, his mom was Kepler's accused. Kepler's mother being... was accused of witchcraft, and she was put in prison. And uh, so Kepler had to put together a legal defense of his mother, which saved her from being executed. And uh, it's really quite a story. And I'm not going to go into that, but this is about a a book. This is the beginning of the of this book about Kepler's witch. And the author is telling about being in Germany. He's an American, by the name of James Connor. He's traveling in Germany. He runs into a student. And he tells him he's writing about Johann Kepler uh, to this German student. So the student asks him, why Kepler? Why write about Kepler? So this is his answer, or part of it. Because in 1620, Kepler's mother was being tried for witchcraft. Germany was well into the Thirty Years' War. Kepler had already lost his first wife and little boy to disease, and in the years following, he lost three more children. In his adult life, he was chased out of one town after another by the Counter-Reformation. He was excommunicated by his own church, and yet throughout most of these years, he was writing a book called The Harmony of the World. (laughs) <laughs> I, I said, I this is a man worth knowing. Great people show up now and then in this world. What makes them great is complicated. Some say Kepler was a genius, which he certainly was, but his scientific intelligence was not the source of his greatness. 
Johann Kepler was one of the most powerful scientific minds of his century. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit. Kepler was a believing Lutheran and would never become a Catholic, even when it would have benefited his career to do so. People all around him were jumping from one church to another. Kepler's father-in-law did it. So did many of his acquaintances and rivals. Simply, simply to better their political or social position or uh, not lose their earthly possessions. But Kepler believed in the Reformation. He believed in it with his soul. He stood fast with the Lutheran Church even when that church excommunicated him. When the Counter-Reformation chased the Lutherans out of their homes, he went with them all the while fighting with the leaders of his own church in order to maintain the integrity of his conscience. This book is a response to the question uh, that the German student posed so succinctly, why Kepler? Kepler is the man who finally confirmed Copernicus. He made a first close attempt at defining a law of gravity, but above that he was a man who contemplated the mathem- in mathematics the glory of God. His life, his work, his mathematics were always about God. Everything he did was about God. Kepler found God in the hidden mathematical harmonies of the universe in as deep a way as he found God in the revelations of Scripture. There's another author you've heard of, Arthur Kessler. Yes. Who wrote, uh, mentioned about Kepler. He said that um, Kepler was the watershed where the medieval world finally gave way to the modern. Kepler was sort of steering people away from superstition. He had to dabble in astronomy. Some of it was kind of forced on him to do that. But he was always steering people toward rational reason and and don't get stuck in astrology. Right. And I think the the one thing about Kepler, of course, this was unintended by Kepler, was his bold use of mathematics in trying to understand the motions of the planets, which is a fantastic breakthrough and insight, something that I think is exactly the, the, the shift away from a sort of uh, mystical medieval cosmology to a much more uh, right. comprehensive scientific, as we would call a scientific understanding. Um, but Kepler did not intend this, but this is something that C.S. Lewis argued against um, in the preface to his monumental work of uh, the history of the English language in the 16th century, excluding drama, something I had to read uh, to write my thesis with Dr. Ward. Um, but in, in the preface of, preface of that book, Lewis talks about the the bold use of mathematics, mm. and uh, com- his thinking on that, combined with uh, the ending of uh, Lewis's fictional work, Out of the Silent Planet, Lewis talks a little bit about a mythology that follows in the wake of science. So in other words, out of this bold use of mathematics, and of course, this is not what Kepler intended it to be, but through the application of mathematics, we've, we've made some tremendous discoveries. But now where we are four centuries later is that mathematics has become almost sort of deified. This is the final ultimate arbiter and truth about what the universe, what the universe is all about. As if that's all there is. That's right. It becomes, a, it becomes a straight, this is all there is, the laws are all there are. And if you read Sean Carroll, a cosmologist, Sean Carroll's book, The Big Picture, uh, the basic tenet of it is, is that Dr. Carroll tries to sort of brute fact the universe, based on the mathematical understanding that we have of the cosmos, we don't go beyond the curtain of where did the universe come from. We have to stick to the laws and the mathematics that we know. And so Lewis's idea is that, not, again, not that Kepler intended this, but, but the use of mathematics empties the cosmos of its, of its personality, of its meaning, of its glory. 
Is this thinking how we get someone like Stephen Hawking, the late Stephen Hawking, say, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself? And so he's looking at this law that is really just a description, right? And saying that it has some sort of causal properties like a person, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's the chief distinction, is that laws and mathematics describe and they're fantastic descriptors. It's kind of like a, a technical poetry, if you will, of the universe. But there, there are laws. This is the very interesting thing that I run into in, 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 in my discussions with, with people that are, are not believing or, or, or rely heavily on science, that a confusion in, like what Rebecca, you just said, between causality and description, that you can take away all the math of all the textbooks and all the numbers that we know of, and the universe is still going to do what it does. Uh, e equals mc squared is a description, not finally a, a, a mechanism for generating things. It's just describing how things are. And so what's interesting, though, when you talk to skeptics today, in some sense, they will, they will have a hard time uh, admitting order in the universe. They will talk about laws, but then they will hesitate and back away from the idea that this this is actually this order actually points to to God. They will sort of admit an order, but then they're bereft of explaining how order comes out of a primordial subatomic fireball. Right. In that 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 so 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 they have this narrative that says order comes out of chaos, but they they have no fundamental explanation as to how this order comes about it seems very happenstance and so how that translates to us personally as human beings is that if the cosmos isn't orderly and it's all an accident and it's just a happenstance uh expansion of matter and energy then that's what we are too if there's no order in the heavens there's no order in in, in my life as well right so the dan there's there's a mathematics to the universe various scientists have said god is a mathematician yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and so, he certainly is. But the mathematics doesn't um, change the fact that you need an ultimate explanation, right? You use and, you, and, and if you if all you have is the physics, you don't have a complete explanation, right? You could see like the uh, the the there was a song from the fifties or the sixties called uh, "Bits and Pieces." I forgot what the band was. It's just all drums and a guy basically screaming, uh, "I'm in pieces, bits and pieces." Because his girlfriend's gone away, right? But if you look at if you look at something like the Collider, the Large Hadron Collider uh, in Europe, where they 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 speed up subatomic particles right. and they smash them together, yeah. and they think that the the more smashing we do, the closer to the truth that we get. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And you, you and I you and I have talked about this. Physicists love to they break, like to crash things, crash they're just things like, together, they're just blow like, things up. They're just like just, kindergartners with matchbox cars, right, smashing yeah. them together, right? That right. Somehow truth is going to come out of crash. <laughs> things but that's what but that's what you see in explanations i was talking recently about whether or not uh the nuclear fusion of hydrogen to helium in suns was an orderly or a chaotic process and it seems from one perspective crazily balanced fine-tuned and well knit together too much fusion and the sun blows apart. Not enough fusion, and the sun collapses. Right. And and yet, when we're told how this happens, the astrophysicists will tell us that that protons and neutrons and atoms collide. Mm -hmm. I've never seen such precision from collisions. 
Mm-hmm. It seems like these things are, are delicately balanced to produce just the right amount of energy. Now, is, this is would it, be fantastic if it was just happening in our sun, but given the fact that there are suns beyond suns beyond suns that we can number, you're going to tell me that this exquisite process of nuclear fusion is just a, a result of happenstance? And, and so in, in the naturalistic worldview, bereft of, of the creator, there is no intelligibility for the intelligibility of the universe. Yeah, so the way I would put it is this. You have the mathematics of the universe that we can discover, but um, that is information about the universe. It is. Mathematics is a kind of shorthand for a lot of information. And we seem to have discovered mathematics. And so if that's information, where does this information built into the universe come from? Exactly. It requires an intelligent creator. And just to kind of give a little bit of a benefit of the doubt to these guys who say math is all there is, mm-hmm. math is pretty amazing. And when you're a math nerd and you really love it, I mean, I, I enjoy math. I took calculus and I loved it. You can get really caught up in the beauty of it and think that that's all there is because there is so much beauty. And you can think that I don't have to ask anymore because I found everything. You find incredible meaning in it, right? And so, but that, again, is the order that we're seeing. So there was the mathematician uh, Paul Dirac, uh, who he combined, I think he combined quantum and Einstein. He combined a couple of, I have to go back and look at this, but Dirac's sort of criteria for an equation to be true was that it had that it was beautiful right he had there was an elegance to the people like well Dirac was a little strange uh, a crazy genius he would look at like an expressionist painting like a Degas or like a like a uh, I don't know who the the uh, Monet and he would say he would he would say things like this painting looks unfinished to me uh, he liked Mickey Mouse. He had some strange ex, ex, uh, eccentric <laughs> behaviors, but but he his his criteria for good math was that it was it was beautiful. Um, we are running out of time here, but I just I think it's been a great discussion. It's just a tidbit of it. Our books will be coming out uh, sometime late spring, next summer, late summer. We're not exactly sure yet. Both of them are coming out on Harvest House. Our tentative title, Wayne, is the story of the cosmos. Uh, you and I are going to be writing chapters. Uh, we have cosmologists, astrophysicists, a, th- a couple of theologians, some astronomers, and some literary scholars, all contributing chapters, uh, tell, each telling a unique and different perspective of uh, the cosmos. And it should be out. Uh, it's supposed to be out July, August of next year. And um, Rebecca, tell us a little bit more about Mama Bears and when your book's coming out and what it's all about wrap, as we wrap up here. Yes, yeah, so we are um, slated to come out next summer as well. So we'll have our, both of our books coming out at the same time. And I think that they, they seem to harmonize well. And that, that'll be fun to see that. Um, and our books are tentatively titled, um, it's titled uh, Cultural Lies and How to Keep Your Children from Swallowing Them. Um, and we have a team of mama bears writing it. So chapters are divided up about, there's about five or six of us. And we come from various backgrounds, um, science backgrounds, literary backgrounds, um, and yeah, that, that's about it. And Hillary and I are just really grateful that you have given us the opportunity to talk about the book. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, and uh, we, we expect to be on the Mama Bears podcast here in the, in the near future, if you don't mind. Uh, I'm just kidding. If you want to do that, that's great. Yeah, we have a <laughs> cosmological Mama Bear consortium. Um, but that'll, that, that we, hope, uh, we hope that uh, you, know, uh, you guys are, check out Mama Bear's website. Um, and you guys have uh, Twitter and Facebook and a podcast website. 
right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You guys have so the, so check out Mama Bear and I. I missed I missed spelling this. It's M A M A, not M O M M A. The website is mamabearapologetics.com. It's M A M A Mama, and um, we're on Twitter at. Um, just look up Mama Bear Apologetics. I don't know what our Twitter handle is. It's not actually M A M A. Uh, bear it's something that we had to find and we also we have a podcast that's on itunes it's also on our website but it's on itunes as well thank you everybody and we hope uh you have enjoyed this uh unique episode of good heavens we hope that it has challenged you to think more holistically about uh the world the place and the time in which we live and uh, we hope that our books will will give you some stuff to think about and we hope this podcast will uh be a way in which you can uh, begin to think more cohesively, more holistically about uh, the heavens and the earth and our, our place within it. Thank you, Wayne and Dan, for having me on to talk about our book. Um, Hillary and I are very grateful for the opportunity, and may God bless our work as we're working on this, finishing it up. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Wayne, and we will see you next time on Good, Good Heavens. Heavens.